expressing concerns. Uh, I say that on behalf of not just me and Mom and Becky, but Catherine and Holly as well. Um, this is, if you're going to pray for my dad this week, pray he learns to swallow. That's like real critical in stroke recovery. With it, you get to eat. Without it, you have a feeding tube. And so that's our, our prayer this week. Okay, let's see. We get to change to the lesson. This week, we get to cover Ezekiel, which is upsetting to my mom that she's not here because she has long believed that in the book of Ezekiel, you see flying saucers talked about. Um, it's not genetic. It stopped with mom. She wanted to know if I was going to cover the flying saucers. She was going to be asking Holly and Catherine if I covered them. Sisters, please tell her yes. Now, let's get to the real meat of the book. Who needs a lesson? Sparky's got some lessons there. I say Sparky. I'm sorry, Mark. He's an electrician who... Uh, anyway, um, anybody that needs a lesson, please uh, raise your hand. And Mark Craver has those and will be glad to pass them out. Um, is Louis Miori here? Okay, good. Someone's got to alert me when he comes in so we can embarrass him. I'll embarrass him appropriately. Uh, it is his birthday. And I've got a point in the PowerPoint where I mention his birthday because he's almost old enough to make the timeline. And uh, <laughs> when, I, when it comes up on the screen and it says Lewis's birthday, we can all just break into song. Um, so uh, um, if he doesn't get here in time for that, then next year we'll really have it down. Um, Ezekiel is what we're covering, and if I can get these lights lowered just a little bit for the PowerPoint, um, uh, that would be perhaps more helpful. Uh, I'm going at it a little bit differently this week, thank you, a little bit differently this week than we have in weeks gone by, and I don't mean to rehash the same history over and over as we go through this class, but this history is something that most of us did not learn in our history books. And so if we're going to understand Ezekiel and the reference in which it's written, we need to understand the framework in which the book came about. Ezekiel is one of the prophet books out of the Old Testament, and I want to first put it into its historical context. I have been experimenting this week with the PowerPoint. You will see something new. A timeline. See, I said it starts up there and it goes down there. That's why it's an arrow. <laughs> All right? Now, what I want to do is I want to get us into a historical context without spending too much time, so I decided not to go back to creation. I decided instead to go ahead and start with King David. We all remember King David around 1000 BC, King David reigns. Is it working? Is that? Can y'all see that? It looks kind of drunk. It's a little bit off to the... I was sober when I did this. I think it's the machine. Um, is that okay? Y'all can live with that? Okay, well, King David uh, is the king of Israel. Uh, back when Israel's uh, uh, almost reaching its zenith, it reaches its zenith under his son Solomon, and then after that things start to fall apart. They start to fall apart in 930 when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam cannot keep the kingdom together. And there is a civil war, and it's like ours between the north and the south. Um, uh, the northern kingdom is ruled by a guy named Jeroboam, the southern kingdom is ruled by David's lineage, um, the northern kingdom goes by the name of, of Israel. The southern kingdom goes by the name of Judah. What I've done is I've put a map up here of the Mediterranean. So we have the boot, that's Italy. We have Greece. We have Turkey. Um, 
um, we have uh, Egypt down here, and that's the Sinai Peninsula. This is the Red Sea. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. That's Spain and Portugal. You all understand where we are, right? Now, what we want to do is concentrate on Israel, which is this area right in here on the easternmost side of the Mediterranean Sea, where I've drawn the circle. And if we look at this as the Middle East, in today's map, we've got Israel here on the eastern part. This is that Mediterranean. We've got Turkey. We've got Egypt. We've got Iraq right here. We've got Kuwait, that little nub down at the bottom that uh, got Saddam in trouble the first time. We've got Saudi Arabia as this big peninsula. Iran is over here. Russia goes up north, and uh, Greece is over here. Now, if we concentrate even further on this specific area, this is the area that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to look at it, though, from a historical perspective. And so let's start with Israel itself and the divided kingdom. Um, this uh, entire area had been Israel under K King David and Solomon, but with the Solomon's death and the rise of his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam had Judah, which included Jerusalem right here, and uh, Jer um, Jeroboam had Israel, the northern country. And so this is what happened in about 930, 930 B.C. All of these dates are B.C. In the 850s, you've got Elijah. You remember we talked about the prophet Elijah. And you've got the rise of a country called Assyria. And so Assyria, if we go back into our drawing, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Here is Jerusalem. Here is Samaria, which became the capital of the northern country, Israel. And um, we've got Assyria right up here. And Assyria becomes a, a dominant world power. Their capital is at Nineveh. And uh, uh, Assyria, uh, along with Egypt, are basically the two power structures that exist. So um, um, during the, the 800s and the 700s, uh, everybody that lives in Jerusalem and, and Israel fear either Egypt or Samaria, I mean Assyria, depending upon what day of the week it is. Okay? Um, let's go further. Assyria is a world power. In the 790s now, as we continue, we're going to read later the prophets of Jonah and Amos. Jonah gets sent to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Okay? That's where those prophets come in, but we don't reach them yet because we're going in, in the Protestant order of the Bible. And so we keep going. 740 is when the prophet Isaiah starts prophesying, and we have covered Isaiah. And if we keep going, in 722, um, uh, the, something finally happens. The northern kingdom of Israel is defeated. The Assyrians, um, if we go back, uh, Assyria was uh, uh, up north of Israel. Assyria dips down and conquers the northern kingdom, Israel. And when it conquers it, it takes the tribes of northern Israel and disperses them throughout the lands. Those are the ten lost tribes of Israel uh, that we talk about uh, uh, in folklore and other things. But uh, 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 that happened in 722. Now, Assyria was not able to come down and conquer Judah. The Bible teaches us this is because Judah was righteous um, to some degree. Uh, whereas Israel had just been a huge pagan nation with Ahab and Jezebel and, and just problems after problems after problems. And so Assyria, as it continues its domination, basically takes over and becomes the world powerhouse. 
but stops just outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem has a godly king. His name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah seeks the Lord and with Isaiah's confirmation during this time, Hezekiah keeps the heart of the country focused on the Lord and the Lord brings um, um, a physical salvation to Judah and Jerusalem. So at 722, with the northern kingdom ending, um, Hosea and Micah start prophesying about this time. And in the 720s to 698, we have that king Hezekiah who stops Assyria in 701 from invading Judah. Okay, you with me so far? Sort of? All right, this is good. Does the timeline help? Kind of helps keep the flow going. Okay, I drew a line there. Um, Lewis isn't here yet. You know, he never calls, he never writes, he doesn't send flowers. He doesn't. Um, I will tell you, and we can all tell him how funny this was going to be. I thought it important to take this timeline and try and open our horizons and look beyond merely uh, biblical history and let's see what was happening in the world. The 700s is also when Homer in Greece was writing the Odyssey and the Iliad. Okay? If you go back to about 1000 BC, which was King David's time, that's when the Trojan War happened between uh, uh, Greece and uh, uh, Troy. Um, Helen of Troy, remember her? She was a babe. She started the war. Anyway, that was back in the time of King David. Now, if you come back here, we now, the, the Etruscans have settled Rome and kind of set up the first Roman kingdom, but Rome is far from being a powerhouse worldwide. In fact, you have now the second Roman king um, right in this time period. His name is Pompilius. And Pompilius, the second Roman king, is important because he added to the 10-month calendar that Romulus had January and February and made it a 12-month calendar. Amazing the things we learn in this class. Now that's also important because January was Lewis's birthday. At which point, and he's almost that old. At which point, we were going to break into song, but he's not here. He missed it. Sorry. So it's gone. It faded. Like James, you know, the Bible says we're just but a breath of smoke and we're here and then we're gone. That was his birthday. Whoosh. See, watch. I had it do fade instead of disappear. I thought it was kind of... Kind of cute. Okay. Uh, anyway, we would have stopped now and saying happy birthday to him, but instead we are blazing new trails through the timeline. Um, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, becomes king after Hezekiah. And while Hezekiah was a good and righteous king, Manasseh, his son, was evil and wicked and a pagan. I don't know why it is. Um, uh, I'm, some of my kids are here, and I'm thankful it's not with my children. But there, there it comes, you know... Every generation, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, feel like they can improve on what, you know, dear old mom and dad had. And uh, some of us grew through that rebellion. Some of us did not. But uh, it's been going on for centuries. It's been going on for thousands of years. And Manasseh comes around, and he doesn't need that good old-time religion of his dad, Hezekiah. He's jumped on the latest fad and the latest uh, uh, bandwagon and found paganism which led him to desolation and his country as well. His son Ammon reigns for a couple of months. And this gets us down into 641 to 609, when after Ammon, Josiah becomes king. When Josiah becomes king, he's eight years old. And he is raised, he'd been raised for those first eight years 
by, by uh, uh, priests of, of Jehovah God, Yahweh. And he's a godly eight-year-old. I was thinking about it when those little kids were baptized this morning at church. I thought, you know, you turn your heart to God early and, and live it for your life. And the blessings are great. And Josiah turns his heart to the Lord. In fact, it's during this time that while they're cleaning out the temple, getting ready to do some uh, uh, rebuilding and some uh, remodeling, they find a copy of the law, which they read and they discover and say, whoa, we really have sort of taken a U-turn in the wrong place. And uh, uh, Josiah tries to cause a religious revival throughout the nation. Unfortunately, while Josiah himself has the fervor, and while he tries to feed the fervor, a lot of the people did not follow. Leadership in a country provides leadership, but it doesn't mandate that everybody follows. And so, during this time, the books of Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk are written. Um, um, now, I want to draw a line there. Actually, I've drawn a line there because I want us to look during the reign of Josiah at what was happening outside of Israel. It's important we understand this. In 612, remember now, what's the governing world superpower? Who's the dominant? Assyria. That's right. In 612, things begin to change. Babylon is starting to march. And Babylon conquers Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Um, if this was the Assyrian Empire, and Babylon is down here, the Babylonians start marching north, and they go and they conquer Nineveh. In the process, that of course, uh, the Battle of Nineveh, causes the Assyrians to retreat. And they retreat back to Haran as their capital. Um, but they are hurting, and, and Babylon now, the green line here in the drawing, Babylon starts to take over as the dominant world power to the north. Egypt is still a dominant world power to the south. Um, you, you've got to redraw the Assyrian line now and see that Assyria is really starting to shrink. So in 612, Babylon conquers Nineveh. And then in 610, Babylon takes Haran. So now Haran itself has been conquered and uh, uh, Assyria is really starting to get small. Babylon is really starting to take on major proportions. And at this point, there's a guy down here in Egypt who's starting to get a little bit worried. His name is Nico. His title is Pharaoh. Yeah. Pharaoh Nico starts to get a little bit worried. And so Pharaoh Nico decides, I've hated the Assyrians all of my life, but they're getting wiped out by this massive army from Babylon, so I need to do something. So I think I'm going to go up there and I'm going to help the Assyrians out just to keep a buffer between me and Nabopolassar and his son, Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar, who are fearsome warriors and who are wiping everybody out. So what does he do? In 609, Pharaoh Necho heads north to help Assyria. And uh, you see he left Egypt and he starts marching north. Well, what does he go by when he heads north? Jerusalem, where Josiah is no longer an eight-year-old boy. He's now an older king. Now, he's sitting there in Jerusalem and up comes the pagan to fight with the Assyrians against Babylon. And Josiah sees an angle there. And so Josiah takes his army and goes out to Megiddo 
and has a battle against Pharaoh Necho there in Megiddo. Um, Josiah is mortally wounded. He gets charioted back to uh, uh, Israel, to Jerusalem to die. Um, and Jerusalem and Judah then become, in a sense, a subject state to Egypt. They've just gotten conquered because they lost that battle. Pharaoh Necho, Josiah dies. Pharaoh Necho continues to go north and up at Carchemish becomes one of the most significant battles in history. This is one of these turning points in history. Depending on who wins this war, all of history changes. Now understand, God has been prophesying about this through these prophets and he's telling everybody, Babylon wins, Babylon wins, Babylon wins. But for some reason, no one seems to be paying attention. So um, the battle takes place at Carchemish between Babylon in the green and the joint armies of Assyria in the red and Egypt in the yellow. And guess who wins? Y'all yeah, listen to the Lord. Babylon wins. And so in 609, or, or 605, basically, um, is Nico, uh, the battle's up in 609. 605, Egypt and Assyria lose Carchemish, and, and Assyria's gone. I mean, it's just annihilated. It doesn't exist anymore. Pharaoh Necho's smart enough to retreat back to Egypt and to, to try to stay real low for a while in, in efforts to try and rebuild his army. And in the process, I might add, continues to keep Israel or Judah as a subject state. Now, Nebuchadnezzar marches south and he starts taking over the Philistine plain. He goes all the way down into Judah and he conquers Judah and takes it away from the Egyptians and takes a bunch of hostages off to Babylon. Um, it's the first deportation of Jews. Now, he doesn't take everybody. He takes some of the elite. This is when Daniel is taken. And God willing, we'll look at Daniel next week. And I'll try not to rehash all of this history. But Daniel is taken in 605 or 604 uh, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. During this time period, and by this time period, I mean Josiah on down, is when Jeremiah was prophesying. And Jeremiah had been telling the people, don't side with Egypt. If you side with Egypt, put your L up because you're going to be a loser. Okay? Don't. Babylon's going to win. In fact, Babylon's going to take us over. You might as well be nice to them and try and get along. And then you can at least live happy with them instead of them annihilating you and taking you captive. But uh, people don't listen to Jeremiah. They lock him up. They call him a traitor. They think he's given inside information to the Babylonians. They think he can't be trusted. How dare he speak out against the king? The king's acting for national security. And uh, Joshua, Jeremiah uh, uh, deserves uh, uh, to be incarcerated uh, without a lawyer. And that happens. Um, so, uh, Jeremiah, and meanwhile, uh, he was right. And God was right. And so hostages are taken. If you look at it now, the first deportation of people, including Daniel, happens in 605. Now, a king is kept there in Judah, a, a, a vassal king to Babylon, and he's just been whipped in a fight. You'd think he'd know better, but he decides, I'm going to go ahead and side with Egypt one more time, and I'm going to quit paying my tribute to Babylon. So guess what happens? You darn right, he comes uh, down, comes Nebuchadnezzar and slaps him around. And there's a second deportation. 
And this is when Ezekiel gets deported. And again, who, who they take in these deportations, they don't take everybody. They need somebody to work the land and to keep the crops coming in and to, to pay the tribute. But they take all of the aristocracy. They take the elite. They take the rich. They take the power brokers. They take these people because they figure with them gone, then uh, uh, they surely were the troublemakers, not the farmers. Okay? So um, the second deportation sends Ezekiel out. Ultimately, we need this date as we look at the book of Ezekiel. Um, in 586, after yet another bonehead uh, effort to throw off the yoke of mighty Babylon by little Judah, I mean, understand the country of Judah is about the size of Harris County right now. Okay? Seriously. Those are the dimensions. And it's going to throw off evil Babylon with, without the Lord even. Didn't need the Lord on their side. Um, the Lord's telling them not to do it. So in 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and he's really ticked this time. And he says, okay, you know, three strikes, you're out. I'm wiping you out. I'm destroying the entire city. I'm destroying the temple. Every rock's coming down. It's being burned. Uh, everything's gone. And I'm taking a whole bunch more people hostage. And he does so. He takes the people from Jerusalem. And they go up to the Euphrates River and they come down to Babylon. Um, the Earl and, and, and uh, other places thereabout. Tel Aviv here is not Tel Aviv, Egypt. Don't get them confused. Tel Aviv is uh, a little bit south of Babylon, and that's where during the earlier deportation, that's the area where Ezekiel settles. Now, with that, let's talk about Ezekiel. Who was Ezekiel? Well, he was a priest. He was a Zadokite priest means he was from the lineage of Zadok. This made him a Lord High Muckety Muck. It made him a significant person. And uh, why he got, I'm sure, taken out in the second deportation. He was a godly man. We know that. We know he was married. In fact, I didn't put it on the PowerPoint. We know he eventually owns his own home in Babylon, or lives by himself at least. He was exiled in the second exile. He has an incredible breadth of knowledge. When you read Ezekiel, you read about a man who knew... A little bit about everything. Actually, a pretty good bit about everything. He talks about farming. He talks about the law. He talks about history. He talks linguistically. He writes poetry. He writes prose. He talks in parables. He talks in prophecy. He talks uh, blunt. He talks in circles. I, this is a man who's got a broad range of knowledge and uh, comes to it in a lot of ways. He is a prophet called by God. If you look in the first three chapters of Ezekiel, you'll see Ezekiel has a vision of God. And this is, uh, in fact, I had a Bible. Is this it? No. But this is one, and I will use it. And it's a good one. It's got Ezekiel in it. Um, it is Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3 where mom finds the flying saucers. <laughs> Whoever read Eric Von Donneken's book, uh, Chariots of the Gods or something? I read it in like high school. His theory was there wasn't really a God and all this stuff we read about in the Bible was extraterrestrials visiting. Uh, he was big on this passage. Uh, this was one of his explanations. And I tell you, if you just read it uh, without uh, an idea of what it's coming from, it sort of sounds like flying saucers. Um, I'll read it to you. First of all, understand this is... Uh, uh, Ezekiel's 30 when this happens to him. 
And he's been there five years. Jehoiachin has been there five years in the exile. So this is five years into the exile. He looks and he sees, a, I'm on verse 4, he sees a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by a brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Oh. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. And they, are, they each have four wings. And, and these four creatures are there with their four rings. And if you look at verse 13, the appearance of the creatures is like burning coals and fires moving back and forth. It's bright and lightning's flashing out of them. And these creatures speed back and forth. And as you look at the creatures, he's, as he looked at the creatures, he saw a wheel on the ground by each of the creatures. And it sparkled like chrysolite. Uh, um, and each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting another wheel. And as they moved, they'd go in any one of four directions the creatures faced, and their rims were high and awesome. And uh, um, they had the wings, and then as they moved, there's the roar of rushing waters. Yeah. Mom's convinced these are... Of course, don't, don't confuse my mom with a pagan. She thinks God invented flying saucers, and these are God flying saucers, so... You know, if any of it is genetic, it starts with the first child, which would be Catherine. <laughs> it waters down by the time Holly and I come along. Um, there comes a voice from above the expanse that's over this awesome vision of the, the creatures in the wheels. Above the expanse is a throne of sapphire. And high on the throne was a figure like that of a man from his waist looked like glowing metal. Brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And this begins the ministry of Ezekiel. I want to tell you something. Any significant thing we commence in our life, especially ministry for the Lord, needs to start with a vision of God. If you have a vision of God in your heart, you will always remember your place. Without a vision for God, we can start thinking we're high and mighty. We can start thinking we're the focus. We can start thinking that this is the universe and this is us and it just goes around us. My, aren't we important? Or we start thinking that our job is so important. It is the vision of God that should leave us on our face, silent, amazed, and then let God move us from there. The ministers who have a vision of God are the ministers who live their lives ministering for God as opposed to becoming themselves the, the object of, of worship and adoration. Uh, it's one reason I have such respect for our staff here, because they have a vision for God. They understand what they see. This is what happens with, Isaiah, uh, with, Jer with Ezekiel. Actually, it happens with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And it happens with Jeremiah also, if you read early Jeremiah. Each of these prophets get a vision of God. Um, but enough. Now, if we look at the book of Ezekiel as a book, what is in that book that we need to carry out with us uh, in our day today? I've pulled out a couple of themes that are unique to the book, and I want to talk about them. The first, 
Ezekiel, more so than any other writer that I can think of as a prophet, talks about the nature of God and who God is. When Ezekiel talks about God, let's pause for a minute and remember something. In the mentality of the cultures and the people back in those days, they did not live in the world we do. They did not have TV. Well, you say, of course they didn't. What is that? They didn't have radio. Of course they didn't. What does that mean? Something could happen 50 miles away, and you might not know it for some time, if you ever learn it at all. It was not on CNN. It was not on NBC. The Drudge Report was not carrying it. You had difficult... Uh, information was not so easily widespread. This same mentality applied to religion. Cultures and people of that time thought that there were a multitude of gods and each god had his own little regional territory. And Yahweh may be God, Jehovah may be God for Israel, but that just meant that little country is where Jehovah was God. You know, his house was in Jerusalem. Now, he might leave his house for a while, but how far is he going to go? If you want to go north to Assyria, you're going to find the Assyrian gods. They lived up there. If you want to go to Babylon, you're going to find the Babylonian gods. They lived there. You want to go to Egypt, you'll find the Egyptian gods. They lived there. The Philistines had their own gods. The Ammonites had their own gods. The Edomites had their own gods. Every little religious culture and center had their own gods who reigned over their territory. And when some country came and conquered the, another country, then that was just a sign that the god of that country that got whipped was not a very strong god. Or maybe he was on vacation or sleeping or something and got caught unawares by some other god. The idea that Jehovah God of Israel was a god beyond the border of Israel was something that had been experienced in Egypt, but that was almost a thousand years earlier when God you know, broke the Egyptian bondage. Outside of that, the prophecies, the teaching, and everything about Jehovah God had always been done for thousand, uh, almost a thousand years in Judah and Israel itself. For the first time now, we have someone who has left and is living, in fact, a whole community of Jews who are now living in Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel sees God. God makes an appearance in Babylon. Ezekiel as a book is a counterpart to Jeremiah. Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is prophesying to the people in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's not in Israel. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Judah. He's in Babylon when all this happens. And in Babylon land of the conquering gods, he has a vision, and this vision is of this massive movement, moving throne, mom's flying saucer, with God on it. And the point is, God was never confined to the temple that, that's in Jerusalem. Jehovah God of the Bible is Jehovah God everywhere. And he comes in like a thunderstorm and he gives this vision to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel realizes and the people realize 
that Jehovah God is not a regional God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship Him. You don't have to go to Mecca to a holy pilgrimage. Jehovah God is where you are. You don't need to go to Him. Yeah, Bill. Yeah. Probably. Which one you want? There we go. Oh, yes, this was very interesting. I got to tell y'all. Uh, whoa! Did I get over it? Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I passed it? No, it's like before that, isn't it? Yeah. See, what happened, Bill forgot this point because we had to blaze through it. But if we look at the timeline, we realize that this was the time when the second Roman king added the months of January and February to our calendars. Very important because on January 25th, 23rd is Lewis's birthday last Friday. Lewis? Lewis? Lewis Miori, can you come up here real quick? <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lewis. Happy birthday to you. Um, Lewis, is, we make a big deal out of it because you don't turn 50 every day. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, happy birthday, Lewis. No more be said. Okay, meanwhile, let's see where we were here. You know, there's a quicker way to do this. Nah, we're going there. Okay, so, see, Lewis has had birthdays all these years as we go by. So God's not a regional God. God's everywhere. God, not, not, think about this. God is where you are. God's not a regional God in our world either. God's not just here at CFBC on Strack and Champion Forest. Open your eyes wherever you are and God is there. Close your eyes and God is there. David knew this. David said, if I were to journey to the furthest reach of the earth, you would be there. The people had forgotten it. We forget it. But wherever you are, in your sin or in your righteousness, God is there. Um, Ezekiel makes this point. He uses this phrase over 50 times. I think it's like 60 some odd times. That you shall know that I am God. And that's why God acts. And that's why God does the things He does. One of the big problems for the Jews, it would have been real easy to be a Jew, to get conquered, to go off to Babylon, and just assimilate, become Babylonian, become one of the people, become a local yokel. These were not a righteous people. The reason they got sent off into captivity is because they weren't righteous. But Ezekiel makes the point to them. He doesn't say, okay... 
Uh, now let's all be, you know, let's remember we're Jewish and we're all related and let's try and get together and try and acknowledge what happened. No, he's very blunt. He says, listen, like it or not, the reason this has happened to you is because of your sin. You will know who God is and you will acknowledge Him as God. You will turn to Him. And God says it over and over. God says, I've done these things for my name's sake. Which is especially ironic because some of the countries are making fun of Israel. Hey, Jehovah God, Yahweh must be a, a, a weak guy if he even exists at all. Look, he got conquered. And they always thought they were so special. They're not so special. God says, I've become an embarrassment. My name is getting embarrassed because of your sin, but that's okay. I'll bear the embarrassment to teach you what you need to know. God says, I will allow myself to be embarrassed for you. He also says, and in the end it won't be embarrassing anyway because I win. And they'll see who's God and who's not. God says, or Ezekiel says over and over, that God does these things to manifest His holiness. Holiness in the Hebrew sense of someone who's set apart. God is holy. God is set apart. God is, if God were like us, heaven help us. But He's not. And the nice thing is, is He calls us to be like Him. So you see what's happening here in Ezekiel? We're seeing God is where you are. And yet God is holy and set apart and unlike anything you are. And God comes to you where you are and says, I want to take you to be like me. Would you please come with me? And that's the way he wants to manifest his glory. Um, Ezekiel is also quite big on the nature of Israel and why Israel as a country existed, why God called Israel out. The fact that Israel was going to continue to exist We've got to remember in our flow of biblical literacy, those of you who've been in the class for the year now we've had it, this all starts with the fall of Adam and Eve and God saying, I'm sending someone to conquer Satan and restore you to fellowship with me where we can again walk in the cool of the day and talk. Where we can relate, where we can be together. Sin has separated Adam and Eve and all of their children from God. But... God prophesied through the seed of woman would come one that would fix it. And that prophecy kept getting further and further specified. It not only would be through the seed of woman, it would be through Abraham. It not only would be through Abraham, it would be through Judah. It not only would be through Judah, it would be through King David. And God's prophecy and God's promise will never be wiped away regardless of what anybody does. And so God has Israel continuing its existence because He's promised a Messiah from them. And He will keep it going. Israel is the disgrace of God at this time, but in the future will be God's glory. And Ezekiel lays this out. A third theme in Ezekiel is the responsibility of the individual. Now this is a time where most prophets had been coming and talking about how the nation of Israel had gone awry, the nation of Israel had gone awry. Ezekiel writes in chapter 18, verse 20, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. What Ezekiel is saying is this. 
while certainly the sins of the fathers get visited on subsequent generations, if I mess up and I sin in tragic ways, I affect my children and my children's children. And, and that's just a fact. But for personal responsibility itself, I am not personally responsible for my father's sins or my mother's or my spouse's or my children's or my siblings or my co-workers. And neither are you by the same token. They're not responsible for yours. We live in a day and age where no one likes responsibility. One of the harshest things when I do something wrong for me to do is to admit it. I am much better at finding other people who are responsible. It is much easier for me to say, okay, well, I did that, but it wasn't really my fault. Or if it was, it was, wasn't totally my fault because I was provoked. We had an episode in our family uh, this week, a good chance for learning, where one of our family members took some actions that, that were not appropriate in response to some actions that were not appropriate. And the point is, our family member has to be responsible for our family member's actions and is not allowed to say, well, it's not totally my fault because she drove me to it. She was out of line first. Ezekiel is a book of personal responsibility, and that's part of growing up in the Lord. Whether we're 50, 60, 40, 30, 12, 10, 2, we teach responsibility. Next theme of, of Ezekiel is the coming kingdom. The last uh, eight chapters or so of Ezekiel talk about the restoration of Israel and talk about uh, the coming kingdom. And there are some very interesting things in there. I've put some materials in your handout that you can read about. They go into a little bit more depth, but the bottom line is Israel gets restored in multiple of ways, evidently. First of all, as a nation itself, a number of the Israelites and Jews will turn to the Messiah and see Him. And we see that happening today. Another point, though, is as Paul makes the point, we who are in the church or who are in Christ are the children of Israel by faith, if not by seed. And we find fulfillment of these prophecies in us as we are redeemed before God and we are His people and He dwells in our midst. So what points can we take home from Ezekiel this week? God is omnipresent. That's a word we get from two Latin words. Omni means all. Present means present. <laughs> God's present everywhere. God's all present. God is all places. If you're in despair, He's there. You just need to look for Him. If you're trying to play hide and seek with Him, it doesn't work. He always wins. He knows where you're hiding. God is everywhere. God is omnipotent. Omni means all. Potent means potent. <laughs> powerful. God is all powerful. You don't have anything. You can't dream of anything. In your wildest imaginations, you cannot conceive of something too difficult for God. Can't do it. Can't play games. Can't say, well, if God's all-powerful, can He make a rock He can't lift? No. That's, that's childhood silliness. 
there are things God cannot do. When we say He's omnipotent, God cannot lie. God cannot do evil. By definition of who God is, He is the truth. He is good. He is love. But within the framework of who He is, He is all-powerful. There's nothing in your life that's too big for God. Period. There's not. And if you're pretending there is, you need to get real with yourself and acknowledge that there's not and ask yourself, why am I pretending? What is the need within me that wants me to find something that God can't do? God is omniscient. Omni, all, ishent. Skiing, the Latin skiing means to know. We get science from it. So let's just say omniscient means he knows it all. Um, that's right. God is omniscient. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's in your mind and he knows what's in your life. Get the vision. Get the vision of this God. See this God for who he is. And with part of that vision of an all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God, receive from Him a commission of what He would have you do with your life today. And then go do it to His glory. Don't run from your responsibility. There really are consequences if you do. I'm not talking about whether you're lost or saved in eternity. I'm talking about here and now. It really makes a difference in your life. Financially, it makes a difference in your life if you live accountable before God. It makes a difference in how your life goes. In your relationships, it makes a difference in how your life goes if you love your wife as Christ loved the church. It makes a difference if you fellowship with the saints and don't forsake the assembly. It makes a difference if you seek what God has for you in your life and you do it. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the honor I have of getting to teach um, up here. I pray that you will help me um, uh, through preparation and delivery uh, teach those things that you would have taught to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit, though, will help us all hear the words so that they don't just pass through our brains, so that they're not just knowledge of history but that we see in the grand scheme of this whole world that you have never quit working and that your hand has moved nations, your hand has moved individuals, and your hand reaches out to take us by name and bring us to a place in life that you want us to have with you. May your spirit make that real to each one of us, Lord. May our hearts renew an allegiance to you and a desire to follow you. Put a vision of your greatness within us. And then send us on your way with your business and all the tools we need to do it. And help us to be responsible and to do that, Lord, by your strength. And when we fall down, Lord, we confess it as sin. That is our fault. And thank you for taking it away. In Jesus we pray, amen.